pretty much all of them have been through some form of intense hardship. Whether that be either a rough, humble upbringing like my dad's or the loss of a parent when they were younger like Alex Harstrick or Adam LaRue or really pushing through and grounding through a sport um, for many, many years like Karen Smyers or, or Max Adler. All of them have gone through suffering and came out stronger on the other end of it. And I think that's the biggest and most important similarity that I can draw across pretty much all of the people that I've interviewed is going through that suffering and and almost like seeking out that suffering and coming out stronger on the other end and just kind of getting through it. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. We're switching things up for today's episode and that I'll be the one being interviewed. My background certainly isn't yet as impressive as any of my guests. However, I thought it might be good to give my listeners a window into the host's background and also share some of the insights I've gained from doing the podcast so far. One of my best friends, Alberto Riverol Usabiaga, will be hosting today's episode, and it will flow similarly to other episodes. We'll get into my upbringing on the seacoast of New Hampshire, the impact that tennis and martial arts has had in my life, my experience in private equity, and my takeaways so far from the podcast. And so, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So, are you recording? Are we live? <laughs> it, no, we're not like live. We're okay. not like on the air. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, technically we're recording now. But uh, I'll obviously like edit this out and stuff, or we can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> As you wish. At the end of the day, it's still your show, even right. though I'm taking over today. Yeah, this is the takeover episode. Yeah. <laughs> Are you excited? I am. I'm ready. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe we can start. And, yeah, let's do it. Uh, I just want to first thank you for letting me take over. <laughs> uh, that, that's actually the place where I want to start. I, I want to start uh, on why you want me to take over so that everyone knows, <laughs> including me, why you want this interview to happen. So I guess I'll start with why I chose you um, to be the, the interviewer. Um, sure. For those listening who don't know who Alberto is, every time I have a conversation with him, he asks extremely deep questions about life. <laughs> um, just super philosophical. So I was like, immediately I knew it was going to be him who I wanted to do the interview because he's amazing at asking questions. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, why I wanted to, someone to interview me is honestly just for most really selfish reasons. <laughs> um, I've had other podcast guests or multiple podcast guests tell me like how fantastic of a mental exercise it is to go through uh, my interview and go through the questions and like how I do it is going through their life and like how they've been able to connect the dots. And then the final question, like what's your driving force? It's like a really honest answer. So I just kind of wanted to do it for myself and also maybe give my, also give my listeners a little bit about me because I haven't really done that yet through audio. Yeah. yeah and 
uh, I was reflecting a bit on that and I guess a lot of your listeners already kind of know you from the questions that you've been asking everyone, but this will really open the doors of who you are and just um, what really interests you and drive you. So, uh, so let's actually start. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be really a drive, drive force for podcast without me asking you, uh, where, where did everything start? Where did you grow up and how, how was your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in New Hampshire um, in the United States. It's like the New England area, so northern U.S. Yeah, so right on the seacoast area, so the summers were great. The winters, not so great. Uh, it, was, it was interesting, like small, smallish town, like around 4,000, 5,000 people. It was a weird combination of kind of like hard, tough New England people, but also like the surf town. I like multiple surf surf shops around. It was like, I don't know. In the winter, it's just like that hard New England people. And then the, the summers, it's like, hey, bro, let's go catch some waves. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was an awesome place to grow up. It was very like calm, very safe area to grow up. So yeah, overall, great place. I think the one thing in being in a small town is that there wasn't much in the way of opportunities to be amongst I don't know, for lack of a better term, best of the best, especially when it came to sports. I typically had to drive or travel at least an hour to be amongst kind of other really competitive or ambitious peers in tennis because that was my main thing growing up was playing tennis. It's so, I mean, not terribly far, but certainly not ideal and, and not like great for parents who had to drive me like that long and when they had other stuff to do. So, yeah. I mean, but you you never lacked a someone to look look up to right you you had your father always there which i mean lo long time listeners of the podcast already know who he is but <laughs> i just wanted to get a sense of how it was to grow up with him in your house and just looking at him from from what he's talked in the podcast he has a drive to accomplish everything that he wants so <laughs> yeah how was it for you really interesting um he's obviously been a massive influence on me for better or for worse uh from when i was you know literally an infant you know watching this this guy who would care for me and feed me was always just working out constantly and quote unquote just like playing outside whether that be playing tennis for hours on end or going surfing or going for a run so naturally i think i'd be drawn to those types of activities uh yeah so i'd say it was just great overall living with someone who's super just dedicated and determined because i think that that rubs off on your kids and he never really he never really like demanded us to ever be like determined or like dedicated. I mean, he, he always would like mention, you know, the hard work is good and stuff, but it was never like something he would always like push us on. But so I think that was important too, because that might've like led me to rebel potentially. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I think most importantly, I would probably credit him with 
that mindset of when I commit to something, I go a hundred percent all in is definitely from him. So yeah, it was, yeah, it's definitely great. And also interesting living with him. <laughs> yeah. And another part of what he talked in one of these conversations was your brother. So I would also really appreciate if you could share some of, your experiences because I guess that's that's a big important part of your life yeah so my my brother uh, is a year a little over a year older than me <clears throat> he's he has a cerebral palsy which um, you know had since he was since he was born so um, he can't walk he can't really use his legs he can't really take care of himself for the most part and yeah, I mean, it was, it's definitely played a huge part in my life, obviously. Um, like, I can remember when I was going to school, um, going to elementary school, like going on the bus. And at that time, just probably like, I don't know, maybe like first to fourth grade, Skylar, my brother, would also be um, going to the same school. And I, he would always be sitting in the front. Um, the front row and have no one else to sit with and I would pretty much every day go up and sit with him to be with my brother and so it maybe doing that might have not allowed me some of this to socialize with other kids of my age at that time but you know then again I would I think I would still do that same thing because he was my my brother so yeah just like had to take care had to sometimes take care of him especially kind of when my dad mentioned he, him and my dad would get into some wars. Uh, but yeah, he's played a huge influence on my life. Yeah. It, from, from listening to you, it, it doesn't really seem as if he was the big brother, but he definitely is the big brother. <laughs> uh, sometimes you, you needed to take over and just help him a bit, but mm. he, he, he's up there. He's a really important part of the family. But um, that's not the whole family, right? You also have your mother, your sister. Can you just talk a bit about them? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with, with my mom. She probably gave me more of like the having fun um, sort of side of me. <laughs> 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 and the uh, empathetic side of me. Uh, super grateful for her because if it wasn't for her, I would likely just start turning into my dad for, for better or for worse. I mean, he's just such an intense presence and like a strong energy to him. Um, so she, yeah, she kind of gives him that like positivity, um, like adapt adaptability, like that sort of mindset. Yeah. And my sister too, she's, um, she's my younger sister. She's about three, three to four years, uh, younger, younger than me. Yeah, and she, our relationship has been, when we were younger, it, we weren't really that close. I'm, I'm not sure why, to be honest with you. I don't know. We were just like kind of like different people, like different personalities. And then as we got older, um, we definitely grown closer and started to talk a little bit more. So, yeah, I say we're it, it's interesting relationship, but we've definitely gotten gotten closer. And yeah, we're I guess one big happy family. Yeah, the Rosa family, a happy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
let's just like move back a bit. And you said that tennis was such a huge influence for you growing up. Uh, I just wanted to know when, when you started, when did you start playing sports or was tennis like your first sport? Can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, I would say as soon as I could stand up, I was playing sports. Um, excuse me. So when I was younger in elementary school, like I was playing, I played a bunch of different sports like soccer, baseball, tennis, but for some reason I didn't really gel well in the team environment when I was younger. Like if other kids didn't put in the same effort or I just kind of got more, it was more so I got eased more easily fed up with the kids I didn't like on the team and I was just I don't want to deal with this like I just want to kind of control my own destiny <laughs> uh and kind of just do the one-on-one -on -one thing which which is honestly probably why I transitioned to tennis which in that time that was probably like I probably committed full-time to tennis probably around eighth grade so like 13 14 years old and like I know I know that tennis on my own experience <laughs> it's, it's a sport that actually requires commitment not only from the child that is playing the sport right but from everyone involved in the family because you got to travel you got to go play to different areas of the of the region especially in the northeast as you as you said where there wasn't a lot of competition where you were growing up so uh, could you share a bit about how your family actually played a role in your tennis development? Yeah, uh, my parents were definitely really supportive. Uh, when I was playing a lot of junior tournaments, my dad was mainly the person who would be driving me to those tournaments around around New England, like around the region. And I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, he was definitely really supportive. Sometimes <laughs> he would get, he would definitely get on my nerves when I was playing when I was playing junior tournaments, for sure. He would stand so close to the fence. It's like <laughs> literally his hat, his the, the, like, the, like the cap, the lid of his hat would be hitting the fence, just staring at either me or the opponent. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so sometimes that would get on my nerves. He'd sometimes he'd be really animated. He'd be like, after I would you know, miss hit a ball, I could hear him, let's go, ah. Your head, your head, move your head, head on the ball. I was just like <laughs> uh, fuming on the inside, uh, just trying to like not flip out <laughs> and tell them to get lost or something. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they were all, they were all like, really supportive um, and incredibly grateful for, for them giving me, driving me to lessons too. And, you know, not just tournaments, but also lessons, you know, having the financial I guess, resources to be able to, to do that as well. So yeah, very supportive, but also a little annoying at times. <laughs> but uh, did, did you ever feel any kind of pressure from your father actually being there and just watching you and maybe like pushing you to win? It's an interesting question. Maybe a, maybe a little bit, because his presence, I would definitely know. I would definitely know he was there. That's for sure. 
<laughs> so yeah, it. I don't know if it was definitely pressure that I felt. Um, just more of his presence that I felt. I don't know if that even makes sense, but yeah, actually, no, you're probably right. It was probably pressure because whenever he wasn't there, I tended to play better. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And just overall, how, how do you think tennis has impacted who you are today? I, I think it's a huge part of who I am today. I think it's helped perhaps more so than anything else. So the seeds uh, for the mindset that I have today, like it's forced me to force me to become mentally tough, like allow me or help me to find Zen in high pressure moments of like a tennis match. And I think it's also um, was kind of the beginning of why I started to like being in charge of my own destiny and just kind of like that aspect to it. I, I really enjoy just kind of, yeah, being in control of my fate and my own destiny, which has probably also led me to become more attracted to more entrepreneurial type jobs. So, yeah, I think it's played a big part of who I am today. Hopefully that explains. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, I can relate a bit to them. So thanks for sharing. Um, but you also mentioned that sports, uh, well, you, you were never actually limited to playing tennis, right? And you were always like trying to accomplish more and just try different things. Um, I just wanted to know, how, how did you get into jujitsu? That is something that you always talk in the podcast. That is part of the introduction. So it must be a huge part. <laughs> Yeah, martial arts is huge, especially in the on my dad's side of the family, in the Rosa family. Um, yeah, so my, my cousin Charles is a professional UFC fighter. I've got a couple other cousins who are also, one other is also a pro MMA fighter. Another one, Charles's brother, just wanted to become a pro MMA fighter. I might know my dad is a got second place in the World Karate Championships. So it's, it's a huge part of the family. Um, so I actually didn't, jujitsu wasn't my first martial art. Uh, I think it, like many other kids, karate was my first martial art. I started doing that when probably sixth grade or so did that for two or three years left, then did something called Wing Chun Kung Fu for another two or three years, which is like close, close up, stand up striking art. And then after that. Um, five years ago is when I first got into jujitsu. Um, and that's been quite the journey. Life and work and school have gotten in the way of me being able to practice it consistently, but I've always come back to it. And I think what attracted me to jujitsu is one, it's an awesome workout. I think it's the best workout I've ever, I've ever done just consistently like 10, five minute rounds of live sparring or drilling with someone. It's just incredible workout. Um, it's a very social form of exercise too. Cause like you're literally like, a, <laughs> you're like hugging someone for like extended periods of time. <laughs> so like you're going to form, you're going to form bonds with the people that you train with. And it's very cerebral too. It's not monotonous. 
every class you're probably going to be learning something new and every role or kind of every sparring like sort of wrestling match that you do is always going to be different there's always going to be something new your opponent's always going to be doing something different you're always going to try to implement something different and uh yeah so i just it's i absolutely love it how do you think your jiu-jitsu practice influenced uh, you as a tennis player and how do you think chase tennis player actually influence who you are as a jiu-jitsu fighter uh, that's that's a good question i would say on the physical side yeah they've definitely helped they're definitely parts of like the jiu-jitsu I don't know, workout that helped helped with tennis and, and vice versa in terms of like quick movements and explosiveness definitely apply to both. Yeah, so I've never, I've never thought of this before. This is a good question. But I think one thing that comes to mind is and what I would call an anchor memory that I had or that, I've, that I have from jiu-jitsu, which is a term that um, Dr. Andy Walsh, who's like a human performance expert, um, uses, which is about five years ago, I fought an hour and 26 minute long jujitsu match, which at that time was the second longest jujitsu match um, in that tournament's recorded history. Um, if anyone has doing has ever done jujitsu that's listening to this, that's a really long time to be rolling with someone and training with someone for that long. It's a long time to be doing anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and kind of why I reference that is this like, it's that experience I draw from whenever anything in my life gets hard or difficult. I just refer back to that and just say, Hey, no one's trying to choke me out right now. No one's trying to basically break my arm right now. And so it's def, it's definitely helped build my mindset that sort of like, I don't know, strong mindset, being flexible, being adaptable to current circumstances and I've been able to even draw from that memory in tennis too. Um, just kind of being more flexible and, and in the moment. So yeah, that's a tough question, but that's, that's my answer. And that's a good answer. That's a really good answer. And actually uh, on that same note, um, these, this mindset of being flexible, um, I, I just want to jump into your, decision to go to Bentley University for college. Um, how, how important was um, for you to remain playing sports while in college? Um, how flexible were you to actually go to a different state or stay in New Hampshire or go to California? What, what were your thoughts with that? Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I wanted to go that far away from home, actually, for college. Uh, when I was looking, when I was in high school, I honestly can't remember why, but I never really, I never looked at a school really seriously that was outside of the East Coast. I think the farthest school, the school that was farthest away that I seriously looked at was Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. So yeah, so never really looked at any schools that are really that far. Um, was 
absolutely going to definitely play sports when I was in school. That was definitely a given. I wasn't going to give that up. So yeah, was there another part of the question? <laughs> yeah, why the decision to go to Bentley? What, oh. what were you looking in there? Yeah, yeah. So when junior year of high school was when I figured out that I wanted to study business. And that's sort of an interesting story. So junior year of high school, that second semester, I, I decided to go to Saddlebrook Tennis Academy in Tampa, Florida to train tennis there and also go to school. And it was, I guess this is kind of ironic, but it was in a U.S. history class that I was taking at Saddlebrook. And this one particular class, um, maybe it was like the economics chapter of the history book we were, we were going over and the supply demand curve showed up on the PowerPoint slide. And it was something about that that really resonated with me. I think it was a combination of both the simplicity of that as well as the practicality that I was really drawn to for some reason. And literally, I th just from that moment on, I just committed to, to want to do business. And I think the next thing I did was buy a biography of John Rockefeller and just dug into that and I don't know the rest is history. So yeah, when I figured when I found out about Bentley and it was solely like pretty much solely focused on business and could take business courses freshman year, I was pretty much sold and I could also play tennis on the team too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was a good pitch from Bentley, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, I've always wondered uh, for someone that wanted to do business after you go through four years of um, uh, college curriculum that is really focused in business, how does your mindset about business really change or does it, does it get affected at all? You mean from taking business courses while at Bentley? Yeah. Like how it changed my mindset? That's a good question in terms of like how, if it changed my mindset at all towards business. Cause I think that, I think it's a tough question because I don't think you can really truly know what business is until you actually work in a business and do an internship. So yeah. So I don't think, yeah, I think it was only once I actually did internships when finally get that first full-time job that I realized that <laughs> the the courses they take in at Bentley or probably wherever else any other school don't really benefit you all that much once you get into business so um i kind of realized that was kind of a roundabout answer but that's kind of the best answer i got that's a tough question oh no that's that's a good point because that leads me to to ask you if, what what are your thoughts about education about going to university and is it really worth it that is a big question <laughs> i am certainly no expert on higher education but my personal opinion is that the university higher education system is really outdated and i think that it should be more focused on preparing students for life after school rather than training them for the job. How that'll look, I'm not sure, but 
there are definitely people way more smarter than I am that could probably figure that out. But at least for me, uh, if we were to be able to more so be taught around how to deal with high stress work environments and tools to be able to navigate that or how to deal with relationships when you're in a high paced job or something like that would actually would think would probably be more effective than I don't know marketing and operation fundamentals class like I who remembers that you know so yeah yeah that's that's, that's that's my quick thoughts on that yeah no good good points we we could really have a long conversation about that (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely Uh, no but uh what area of business actually interests you were were you a marketing guy uh did you want to be in sales what did you want (laughs) to do what was interesting about business for you yeah so i've kind of more always thought of myself as a numbers guy so i naturally gravitated towards the finance and accounting pieces when i was at bentley and how that sort of played out over time at bentley was when i started taking more courses uh finance marketing operations courses as well as networking with a bunch of people and talking with a bunch of different people in different industries i found out pretty quickly that i was interested in two aspects of I guess, quote unquote business. Uh, The first one being what makes a good investment. And the second one being how different companies operate. And as once I've figured that out, I tried to find careers and industries within business broadly that would allow me to dig into and learn about those two aspects. And private equity was kind of like that perfect intersection of the two. And so once I figured that out, I then tried to, as much as, a, as possible as a college student, insert myself into that industry. So. And, and how did you try to accomplish that? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, firstly, it was primarily networking with people and reaching out to people when I was at Bentley, like asking if they could meet with me at their office, if I could go meet with them at their office hop on a call, grab coffee, learn more about that firm, about their firm, introduce myself, um, tell them I'm interested in the industry, just keep in touch, join the the Bentley's Private Equity and Venture Capital Club. And yeah, it was honestly, for the most part, it was just honestly a bunch of networking. And then uh, luckily for me, I was able to secure an internship during my senior year uh, at a search fund, which is pretty similar to which is a role that was pretty similar to like a private equity internship, which allowed me to gain some sort of experience, I guess, within that field. Uh, and that, which aligned, also aligned perfectly since it was right after the fall season of tennis and b- before winter break. So I was able to do that for a few months. Um, but yeah, it was mostly just a lot of networking. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really important. Um, just so that everyone is in the same page. Uh, can you explain what private private equity is in like two minutes? Wow, <laughs> this was not on the question. <laughs> no, but, no, but uh, I guess I guess I would I would put it this way: we're look we 
I don't know why I just said we, but that's like Impact <laughs> working at Equality. But uh, I guess I'll go with we. We're looking to look for and invest in companies and partner with them to build them and making them grow over the long term. And these companies aren't traded on the public markets. That's how I would put it. Okay. And is there anything in particular uh, that makes private equity different from venture capital? Yeah, so venture capital is more earlier stage investing. So if you're familiar with the show Shark Tank, like it'll be like essentially investing in startups is what venture capital is. Whereas private equity, you're investing and for the most part, buying the majority ownership of the companies that you are investing in. So they're typically much bigger, much more mature. They've been in business for long periods of time. They're more, they're typically more profit. They're typically profitable. Uh, they're not burning a lot of cash. Yeah. I see those are the, those are the main differences. Okay. And at the end of the line, uh, at the end of time, they look for someone to buy this company or they choose to hold the company? Uh, the private equity firm, you mean? Yeah. 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 So at the end of the private equity firm's like fund cycle, so each, the private equity firm has a fund uh, where investors will invest their money in hopes for a return and they get this return when the private equity firm eventually sells off their stakes in their portfolio companies. So yeah, eventually each firm is different, but let's say like, I think the average hold period or how long a private equity firm has partnered or partners with their portfolio companies is around five or six years. So after five or six years, they'll then sell the company, make that return on the investment, give some of that money to investors, put some in their pocket and and yeah. <laughs> I, I guess you you actually learned something during your time at, at Equality, right? <laughs> yeah, at first I was like, oh man, I forgot everything. And then I got, I got it back in like a, it took me like 10 seconds, but I got it. <laughs> no, it's good. It's just so that all the listeners are in the same page and actually no. Yeah, and if, and if Tom, uh, Tom, if you're lis listening, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't screw it up. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to rewind a bit and go back to your time at Bentley. Senior year, you're about to graduate. What are you doing next? You're looking for places to, to work. What are you looking for? And what places are you going to work for now? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So unlike many of my other peers at Bentley, I didn't have a job lined up um, when I graduated at, at Bentley. It's, they pride themselves on their graduation statistics and, and like how many of each class, um, you know, has a full-time job lined up uh, before they graduate is probably in like the 90 something percent. I was not one of those, not one of those students. So that was, that was pretty tough, but it, it definitely worked out in the end. But after that, the summer after I graduated, I spent just that summer, you know, June, July, most of August in full, full on job search mode, which looking back was a probably pretty tough period of time for me. 
I think it's a long period of time for anyone to, to just be solely focused on the job search and not really doing anything else. So, but, uh, but yeah, and then we can go into the story of how I got the equality job, which I think is pretty, somewhat decent story. Sure. Sure. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah. So that story of how I got the job at equality is, I think it's just a good story of not that annoying persistence paying off over time. So uh, so as some of, some of my listeners may know, my dad, before he sold his company to uh, Annex International, partnered with a private equity firm called Summit Partners. And so when freshman year at Bentley, I figured out I was interested in PE. I told my dad, hey, do you know anyone in private equity? I think I'm interested in potentially going into this industry. He's like, yeah, you should talk to Tom Roberts. And Tom sat on the board of my dad's company. And so when I figured that out, I emailed Tom, um, the summer after freshman year was the first time I met with him, got lunch at this like pretty, really fancy, like private club lunch restaurant in Boston. And then from there on out, all four years at Bentley, just kept in touch with them, hopped on, Hey, do you want to hop on a call? Do you want to grab coffee? And so on and so forth without, again, without trying to be too annoying. And so the August after I, after I graduated, he literally sent me an email sort of out of the blue saying, Hey, can you meet me at this coffee shop in Southborough, Massachusetts? That's it. I was like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then it was at that meeting that he offered me the job to be the first employee at this new private equity firm. He wanted to start it up. How, how did that make you feel? Oh, I was through the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. One of the, one of the best, kind of feelings and moments of my life so far was that was post that meeting for sure. Cause I'd, I'd had my eye on getting that industry for yeah, like four plus years to finally like get into it and have that be the way to get into it was an opportunity that I hadn't even dreamt of. So just over the moon. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that must have been really exciting. So, um, what did you think was gonna be your day at a private equity firm? What did you think that you were gonna be doing day <laughs> in and day out as a private equity analyst? For equality? For equality. Yes, yeah, so Tom gave me a little bit of sense of what my role would be when we met at that coffee shop. Um, it, sound, it sounded like I'd be doing a little wearing a lot of hats and at first it'd be a lot of ad hoc projects like yeah a lot of ad hoc projects to and projects to help just kind of get the firm off the ground essentially and set up the infrastructure so but I guess still knowing that I didn't really have any idea what the actual work content would be um so I, yeah I kind of went in just eyes wide open just kind of not sort of knowing what to expect, but I was just going to be a sponge and learn everything that I could and just work incredibly hard so that I could add value in whatever way I could. And, and what was your actual role at the company once you, you, you got into equality? Yeah. So it's interesting. So um, the first year and the second year were very different. So the first year was, very up and down one week I would it would be 
you know, a lot of work. Yeah, like a ton of work, you know, 8, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. If you just focus on this, don't do anything else. Don't leave your seat. Like you're going to be in the office and, you know, that's it for like these few weeks. It's going to be a lot. But after those few weeks, it could be just you basically just twiddling your thumbs waiting for the next project and it'd be incredibly boring. So yeah, that was that for the first year. And that was more, like I said, around setting up the firm's infrastructure. So I was doing things like trying to figure out what our CRM should plat- CRM platform should be. So customer relationship management, how are we going to keep track of contacts and deals and leads and also in potential investors and all of that doing reference calls with other PE firms like, hey, who do, who do you use? Do you like do you like it? Why don't you like it? So on and so forth. Creating PowerPoint slides for to present to placement agents who are the people that help private equity firms raise their funds for investors, help them do some of that. Um, figuring out who our IT provider should be so that you know we're not getting hacked constantly. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was a, it was a bunch of like, really interesting kind of kind of sort of like back office but also strategic level operational level work for that first year but also very up and down and then once all that got settled in and in place was when i transitioned into a more traditional private equity type role so if you're familiar with the industry the industry like an analyst type role at a private equity firm it's deal sourcing so cold emailing cold calling potential companies talking with mainly the CEO, um, maybe it's another executive that can't get through to the CEO, but ideally the CEO of the company, get on the phone with them for like 30 minutes, learn what you can about the company, try some CEOs are harder than others to get um, some financial statistics like revenue, profitability, growth, and stuff like that. Uh, Do a lot of market research into sectors that we think would be interesting, present those, present your research into a concise presentation to then present to the partners at the investment committee. Um, so that, that's like deal sourcing, essentially like business development for a private equity firm. And then on the other, the other half, I guess, the other half of the job I would say is deal execution. So that's like financial modeling, like heavy Excel spreadsheet work, doing all that sort of analysis, digging into all the data that the company sends us in this, data room and just doing all that sort of sort of analysis and that very much like grunt work but uh it's a very necessary part of the job so and that second year was very constant heavy workload like you know getting to the office at say you know 745 ish and then if there wasn't a live deal going on so if we weren't looking to weren't in the weeds of trying to close this deal, leave the office around seven, seven ish, get home, you know, maybe just shoot off a couple of emails, do a little bit more work, like a little bit more research. Um, but if we were in the middle of the deal, it's, you're going to leave whenever, whenever, like, I don't know, you can get the work done that needs to be done for that day. So like it could be, I think the latest I left the office is probably like two thirty five or something like that in the morning. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, it's just kind of whenever you finish the deal work that needs to be done for that day. So yeah, it was an interest, very interesting job, awesome learning experience, 
kind of crazy at times. It was humbling. Also filled me with a lot of pride and, you know, yeah, it was, it, it was crazy and awesome. <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds like an experience. Um, I, I am wondering from the conception that you had about what private equity was uh, to two years, Chase Rosa realizing and working the ins and outs of private equity, what changed? Was it what you were expecting or how was it different to your idea and conception of private equity? I think it was pretty similar, I would say. I've, I had a pretty good idea in terms of the tr like that second year, I had a pretty good idea of kind of what that was going to be like, because I talked to a lot of people in the industry um, while at Bentley, like what their jobs were. So I had a pretty good idea of what that entailed. So that was, that was very similar in that, in that regard. What I would say I did not expect would, was how that lifestyle was going to take a toll on me both mentally and also um physically as well just kind of going through that basically as a rule you have to be on 24 7 so and i i did not expect that to to really be the case honestly um and that definitely took a toll on me mentally as well as physically and i did not expect that do you think that kind of stress works for people or is it something that it isn't natural and shouldn't be tolerated? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, people obviously have done it. So yeah, there are obviously people that can handle it or I think more, more so is the case they choose to handle it or they're more well-equipped than others to handle it. There's, there's a quote that I like, um, it's called, or it's, it's something along the lines of rather than find the career that you will excel at, find the career that you're most well-equipped to suffer through. And I think there are more, there are people that, <laughs> that are more well-equipped to suffer through, through private equity than others. So I don't, I don't know, as far as like, should it, like, should it be tolerated that question? Um, I do think the investment part of, part of why the private equity style lifestyles like this is due to the deadlines for when a deal should close that are often set by these investment bankers and that they put pressure on you to get all your diligence done by this date or else the world explodes or something like that. Like it's a big, <laughs> it's a big deal. And, uh, so I think, I think if if that kind of dynamic with the investment with the investment banks and how they kind of put this pressure on companies and buyers and sellers to get deals done by certain dates and and stuff like that was somehow changed I have no idea how that would work it would put less 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 stress for for the industry overall but yeah that's a tough question it's a great question though yeah, and I am wondering, especially for you talking out a bit of the stress and the toll that these work 
took on your body and your mind. When when was the time where you realized this wasn't sustainable for you? And I hate the phrase take action, but when did you <laughs> take action? <laughs> yeah, that that moment came when I realized that the stomach issues that I was having that arose during that second year weren't going to stop unless unless I changed that lifestyle and got out of that environment. So I probably honestly would have kept on just chugging along, just bulldozed ahead and you know, after our the my two years was up, go to another PE firm or something like that, had those stomach issues not arisen. And honestly, it was probably a blessing in disguise looking back. Because honestly, I think it was just my body telling me, hey, things are going to get far worse for you than this if you keep going at this pace that you're going in, in this environment. So it was, it was when I realized that those stomach issues weren't, weren't going to stop until I left that lifestyle that I realized the lifestyle wasn't sustainable. And I can remember going to both a primary, my primary care doctor as well as a um, GI doctor and describing my symptoms to them. And they were like, oh, that's, that's really strange. Like, I've never heard of that. Like, they're like, in, like bewildered. And like, that's not something you want to hear from a doctor when you're describing something that's giving you a lot of stress. And they were like, off, like mentioning like these medications I could take and one thought, hey, if this doesn't work, like we'd recommend a colonoscopy, like a colonoscopy. And I was like, there's no way that I need to have a colonoscopy or at the even take these medications. Like I, there's no way I'm going to do that. I kind of know intuitively in the back of my head, it's because of the stress and this lifestyle that I'm doing. So yeah, it was at that point that I knew. Yeah. And I am wondering what, what did you do? Like being in your dream job and it's a, you were the first employee, uh, equality. Uh, how was that conversation with Tom? Um, was it difficult for you? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, that, that was, that was interesting. So yeah, I mean, like I relayed to him, like, Hey, you know, like this is a incredible opportunity. Like I would love to stay, like find some way to stay. It's like, like, it's like, like you're 23 years old and you're the first employee at a private equity firm working with some of those successful private equity investors in Boston and maybe the nation. Like why would, for anyone who has any sort of career ambitions, want to leave that opportunity? And that, that's what my mindset at that time was. And so that conversation with Tom is like, hey, this is a two-year program. There isn't that next step for you here was definitely tough. But... You know, it is it is what it is, and that's kind of the standard standard of the industry um, for a lot of associates and analysts is to have this two year program. And I can't remember the words that he used exactly, but it was something like, "Is was it or is it impossible? Was it impossible for you to stay past the two years at a, at this firm?" No. Was it realistic? Also, no. So. You know, it's, it was very tough. It was a very tough conversation, but you know, what are you going to do? Like there was, there was no choice and I had to accept it, but even with, even with accepting it, accepting it, it was, it was still tough to, still tough to deal with for sure.
and it took me a long time, um, even a few months after I had left Equality to kind of come to terms with it. Mm. I, I am wondering, this is a completely hypothetical scenario, but you with your stomach issues and having this deadline, it, it kind of aligned. So you, yeah. you never actually had to have this difficult conversation of, okay, Tom, this is over. I need to quit <laughs> because of my stomach issues. Um, have you had the chance of staying at Equality would you have taken it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just knowing my, what my mindset was at the time. Um, I was, I was gonna, I was definitely gonna stay. Yeah. Which, which I mean, thinking about that, like, I don't even know how bad my stomach could have gotten, honestly. If, uh, yeah. if I kept, if I kept going, it would have gotten to a point where, probably I would have had to have had that colonoscopy <laughs> which is scary to think about but yeah I, I would have said yes things happen for for a reason <laughs> yeah thank <laughs> god yeah uh, I think this would be a good time for just <laughs> for the lightning round <laughs> no no <laughs> some recommendations for people that are um thinking about getting into private equity um what what would you tell them yeah uh that's it's a good question also a tough question because my experience was pretty unique in that industry however if you're someone that's looking to get into the industry there are a few different paths that you can take and my advice would be slightly different for each one if you're looking to get into the industry straight out of school you just have to net network like an absolute animal while in school just as much as possible try to in insert yourself into the industry kind of like what i mentioned before or you can kind of take the more traditional route which is going to investment banking or consulting um you know typically requires you to have like a really high gpa like when you're top of the class which i was not <laughs> um do a lot of extracurriculars and still do a lot of networking too um and just kind of really express your interest in wanting to to do investment banking that would be my my advice in terms of how to get into the industry um my advice in terms of like like what are the right reasons to want to go into the industry yeah you just got to be <laughs> you got to be willing to really put in the hours can, like can you see yourself working sitting down at a desk from 8 a.m to 10 p.m like pretty much regularly and just grinding it out do you have experience like really toughing it out in sports or kind of other areas like performing arts or something like that or or school um to then transfer to the industry so so yeah i think that would be my advice hopefully that was good <laughs> it was good <laughs> um i now now that we we've left equality Yes. Asset management. Um, where Where are you? Uh, what are you? What are What is your day to day after leaving Equality? Yeah. So, day to day, like that. Soon after leaving Equality, I was still kind of in this, and it's 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 kind of funny that we're talking about this because earlier today I had a conversation with one of my uh, podcast guests, Hobie Darling, and we were kind of mentioning this 
I don't know, lack of a better term, phenomenon where if you're in like a high arousal type environment for long periods of time and you leave that, even though you've left that environment, your mind is still in that like high arousal mode and it's still like kind of, that's what it's used to. So you're like, you're seeking it. So I was very much in that, in that kind of high arousal, extreme, extreme, extreme type A mindset. And so what that meant was I was basically still... <laughs> this <laughs> is so funny looking back at that at, at this like two two month stretch after i left equality it's just like because I, I had lunch with one of my colleagues uh or one of my former colleagues after i left i was telling him like hey i like i'm still like working like 8 a.m to like 9 p.m on this job search thing like not doing anything else just looking for jobs just grinding it out um and that's what i was doing i was looking for jobs and they were all kind of that typical next step that you would picture someone taking after having a private equity type job. So maybe going to earlier stages of venture capital or going to work for a company and doing corporate development. And what that, what that is, 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 is more or less looking for potential acquisitions to then integrate into that company um, or doing like more like kind of like strategic level work at different companies. So that's what I was looking for those first few months um, after I left. That's kind of what my focus was. And did, did you accomplish your mission of getting another job or what was the result? So no, <laughs> I had a lot of interviews, a lot of really great interviews, a lot of really great phone interviews and, and meetings with firms and companies that were really interesting. Uh, excuse me, but none of them, none of them panned out. And after the first, the first few months, um, I just started dreading the next interview. Like, just like, I'm not, I just don't want to do this like at all. And that's something that never has never really happened to me before. And it was at that point that I really took a step back and tried to figure out, okay, what do I like actually truly really want to do? and not what I think I should do. And, and to use uh, a phrase that one of my other podcast guests, podcast guests, Alex Harstrick used, not what would win me applause at the next cocktail party. And that led me down the path of just some really just crazy, dramatic life changes and let just not even talk about like career changes, but life changes, like going to China to be, essentially a sh like live with a Shaolin monks for six months or be like try to go down the, like the Navy seal route or like Marine Corps officer route and like joining the military. And yeah, so I was considering everything. All options were open for me at that point. Um, and yeah, so yeah, so things didn't work out and then I just started considering. And then after that, all options were open. What, was there anything similar amongst all the careers that you were looking for that made each of them appealing or was it just random? For the, for the jobs and the interviews that I was doing? Yeah, or even like going into the military, <laughs> uh, going, to, <laughs> going and become a Shaolin monk. Uh, yeah, I'll put those two aside 
um, because that, that would be hard for me to kind of draw those similarities within this time frame. But um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, so like I like I mentioned, it was it was honestly just first they were the next logical the logical next steps that someone would after having a private equity experience would would look at. So that's really what was first driving me to look at those jobs. And yeah, I was on like generally interested in the work that I'll be doing for those jobs. And that sort of work would be really strategic level work within the company, working with like working with the executives of the company helping drive decisions that would really have an impact in terms of the long-term trajectory of the company, like really move them closer to their vision, doing a lot of market research. Uh, Well, not just market research, just like research in general, a lot of analyzing data or markets, presenting those findings to the executive team to help drive decision-making. So yeah, just like, and which which is honestly the type of work that I'm looking to get into next is that strategic level work because um, I find it you know extremely interesting and fulfilling. From what I can see, uh, you you are trying to get into something where you could actually have some impact and make decisions that could affect the decision or track of the company or just whatever you're working on and i think that that's a good segue for to talk about the podcast right because mm-hmm. uh you 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 you've been interviewing more than 40 people uh, that are decision makers that have essentially have have had a huge impact into their careers and in their industries so uh, i am wondering how did the idea of the podcast start? Yeah, yeah, great question. So that the genesis of that idea came about in I want to say December of last year was when that idea came about. And for me, that was after the Shaolin Monk idea was scrapped, kind of thankfully due to COVID. I heard some kind of like horror stories of uh, not horror stories, but what could have been horror stories of the students that were had to stay there during that time when that the outbreak happened within China, because at the Shaolin temple, they don't do Western medicine. They just kind of doing like Eastern medicine, like healing and energy healing. Wow. So that's kind of wild, <laughs> but uh, like uh the mil- has it worked? I have no idea. <laughs> and I, I haven't, I haven't uh, checked up on the Shaolin Temple uh, Facebook page. <laughs> uh, um, and obviously the military, you know, scrapped that idea. Yeah, so, and then as I was kind of just in this kind of sort of limbo of like um, generating ideas of what I want to want to do, it's always, not always, but since Bentley, it's been in the back of my mind to always want to try something entrepreneurial but i never really had that idea or like cause that i was super super fired up about to want to just go all in and empty my bank account to solve this problem but 
the idea of creating something and building something was definitely something I was interested in. And, you know, I really like listening to podcasts. I love talking to really interesting, successful people, learning how they got to where they are today, um, what drives them. I also really like motivating others. And so it was the intersection of all those things that led me to, uh, to form in the podcast. And so that's what I did. Yeah. And it's been going pretty good, I guess. <laughs> it has. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I have no plans on, on stopping. Yeah. Uh, how did you settle uh, on the name of the podcast? Yeah. I wish this was like a more interesting story, but it was literally like one of the first names I thought of. Um, yeah, it was just literally one of the first names I thought of. Cause like, you know, thinking about what drives really successful, interesting people, you know, drive, driving force, driving force podcast. Is it taken by someone? No. Okay. Let's use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's honestly, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was honestly it. Yeah. So uh, something interesting about the interviews that you've had is how different each of the conversations has been. Like you've talked to people from a myriad of different industries. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what are some of the similarities that you've picked on of each of the speakers? Uh, because all of them have been successful in each of their careers each in their particular way but what has what makes them stand out overall yeah i love this question so pretty much all of them have been through some form of intense hardship whether that be either a rough humble upbringing like my dad's or the loss of a parent when they were younger like alex harstrick or adam larue or really pushing through and grounding through a sport um, for many, many years, like Karen Smyers or, or Max Adler, all of them have gone through suffering and came out stronger on the other end of it. And I think that's the biggest and most important similarity that I can draw across pretty much all of the people that I've interviewed is going through that suffering and, and almost like seeking out that suffering and coming out stronger on the other end and just kind of getting, getting through it. And there's other things too, like can-do attitude, resilience, courage, you know, et cetera. But I believe all of that sort of stuff stems from the suffering and the hardship that they've gone through. So that's what I would say with that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, another question about the interviewers, interviewees. Uh, do, do you believe that each of them thinks of that thinks of herself or himself as a successful individual that they've accomplished their mission here on earth or are they still trying to get more accomplish more yeah i think the nature of of these these people is that they're successful and they're accomplished and they they know that but i don't think they'll ever be satisfied um with that they're always looking to become better than they were the day before. And it's just that like constant pursuit of excellence that I think is a common thread um, across pretty much all of my, all of my podcast guests. So, so yeah. 
yeah that that's a good point and uh now, now i'm wondering after listening to all of them what, what are some of the habits or um uh, just activities that you picked on from listening to them yeah so i think there's one there's really one that that stands out and that's the interview that i had with uh, Kristen holmes who is the vice president of performance science at at whoop um the human performance company and that that habit is around optimizing sleep and optimizing my sleep so what's been huge uh, since the interview is keeping my sleep um, and awake times as consistent as possible has been um, incredibly like helpful and has improved my well-being and states I guess um, day by day so that's that's been that's been one that that's been huge is kind of that habit of keeping consistent sleep awake times so for me that looks like um, you know going to bed and waking up in like within a half hour um, each and every day. And that's, that's kind of been that big one for me. Where have you seen the changes of that habit? Uh, what, do you, what do you mean? Yeah, like how has it affected your physical activity or your performance? Where, where do you see the changes? Yeah, I think so. Initially, it's getting up is just easier. I, I just find even if I was to even if I was to add like two hours or an hour and a half more of sleep, I would feel less good um, than if I just kept kept to that same awake schedule. So that's that's one big one. And yeah, I just I just feel I just feel better and just kind of more ready to take on the day at a like a sooner time um, than when I was I don't know the sleep awake time wasn't that consistent. So yeah, as far as like physical activity that's that's tough because it's been so it's only been so recently that i've started to do this and um so i haven't really noticed like a huge impact in terms of like physical activity but yeah in terms of like getting ready to like start the day and like just my mind feels a lot more a lot more fresh more consistently like each and every day i guess i'll have to try it out <laughs> I, I usually wake up at the same time during the weekdays, but as everyone, almost everyone, I I sleep in a bit uh, during the week uh, weekends. So I'll try it out. <laughs> try to extend it to the weekends. Um, now that we're still in the podcast, uh, I, I I need to share with you that something that. I've always thought about social media overall and just trying to uh, put myself out there is the sense of privacy that I am losing when I am sharing my thoughts and just my life with people. Was this something that you considered uh, launching the podcast or how has how have you seen these affect your life? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm certainly no celebrity, so it's not like I've got paparazzi like hanging outside of the window waiting me for to leave the door. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it never it never was really something that I considered. Uh, I was more like I've never really been someone to like 
I've never really been a fan of social media in general. I've more of like, yeah, kind of like you actually. I have more like a, a dinosaur when it comes to social media in terms of people our age. Um, I've never really been that drawn to it. I only got Instagram in order to help promote the podcast. Uh, so I kind of feel like I'm an introvert masquerading around as an extrovert in order to uh, promote this podcast. But yeah, as far as like privacy, not not really. Because it's not like I'm like sharing like what I'm doing each and every day or something like that. Um, I do realize that like more of my data is more accessible to, I don't know, whoever would want to steal it in at different platforms, but that's something that I'm fine with. I think for anyone who's on the internet now, if someone really wants to cause you harm, they'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> so even if it's through your email or some other account that you have. So yeah, that, that privacy thing has never really been a concern for me. Do, do you think that if the podcast keeps growing and you have, I don't know, Five million listeners. Would, would oh, this be a concern? Ah, uh, I would say at that point, probably. Yeah, it would definitely be more of a concern because more people would. There would be a lot more attention on me for five million listeners. Like that would put me to like celebrity podcast status, so people would like be trying to sell me on a bunch of different stuff and like, yeah, trying to hack me and. Yeah, so it, at that point, it would, yeah, it's a good point. It would probably be much more of a concern because people would be, there would be more people that would be actively trying to like cause me harm because it's so big. Mm. But at this point, it's not really the, like a, an issue. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. But, yeah. Um, I, I am wondering about uh, your sense of responsibility with your listeners. Do you feel that you kind of owe them something for listening to you? I think so. And you can tell me if this is like the direction you want me to answer this question in. Uh, I think, yes, I definitely have some responsibility for, or I definitely have the responsibility to the listeners. Uh, for me, the, the big one there is consistently, consistency of release is huge. I'm always going to just be, you know, what, if you're a listener of the, of the podcast, like there will be, an episode Monday morning for you to listen to without question. And I'm committed to that. So that's, that's the big thing in terms of responsibility to my listeners. And, and of course, to making sure that the, the guests will be someone that people would be interested in hearing too. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, now Chase Rosa, the established podcast uh, host what is your day today? Um, today. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess compared to other, uh, my podcast guests, I'm a little bit of a slacker in this regard, but um, ideally get up around 7, 7 a.m. Um, first thing I do is drink a glass of water. I found that that's been really helpful to kind of get me going. Um, wake up a little dehydrated usually. So I'll get a glass of water. Then if it's a morning workout day, um, I'll eat like a granola bar or like a, like a cookie or something small like that and then get the workout in. After workout, shower, meditate for 15, 20 minutes. 
And then after that, start working on the podcast and job search related stuff until about 7 p.m. And then uh, some, I'll sometimes have jujitsu class that I'll go to. Or if I don't, I'll just do some, I guess I'll just call it learning, like read, listen to some podcasts, sometimes chill out, uh, watch a show, and then get in bed around like 10 p.m. That's a pretty good schedule. (laughs) (laughs) A big change from when you were working in private equity. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now now I am wondering, um, how how does the future of Chase Rasa look like? Uh, what, what What are you working on today that will determine your future? so let let me know if this is like kind of what you're looking for here so i think similar to what i had did before in terms of trying to insert myself into the private equity industry when i was at bentley now my focus is trying to insert myself into what i would call the human performance industry and kind of yeah doing that as much as possible a lot of it is which has been great has been through the podcast is kind of through that like a lot of like the listeners will kind of figure it out. Like there's a lot of like human performance stuff that's kind of woven into each guest and kind of some of the questions that I ask. So I would say that's what I'm doing now. That'll have a really big effect in terms of what my life will look like in the next year is how I'm going about inserting myself into this human performance industry, which I think is really, really exciting. So is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what about, what, what about human performance is what interests you and drives you there? Oh yeah. It's such, it's so awesome. It's such an awesome and interesting space. And one I think is like, so obviously beneficial for society as a whole. I'm certainly, I'm certainly no expert in in the space uh, by any means, but I like to think of the whole health, wellness, and fitness industry as on like a spectrum. So on one end, you'll have like self-care, which is like, I like to think of as like sustaining and maintaining well-being. And on the other side of that spectrum is human performance, which is like the pursuit of excellence across all many different areas of of life. And so how this kind of, where I'm going is kind of the genesis of this interest in human performance after leaving private equity, those first handful of months, and I think we've talked, we've touched, we've talked to this, we've touched on this before. I needed that self-care piece. And that was what really resonated with me. Um, those first handful of months after I left. So yoga, meditation, being in nature, like forgiveness, compassion, and so on. Um, which if you remember my desire to go to China with the monks would have been kind of connecting the dots here. Uh, a lot of meditation, a lot of like spirituality, Eastern medicine type work. So, but after I felt kind of like recovered, then I kicked back and took my type A mindset with this knowledge of what it actually truly means to take care of oneself holistically. And so now I've just been kind of like full on, kind of like raging inferno, obsessed with human performance. And it's been really awesome. Yeah, yeah. It seems like all of the dots are connecting. 
everything is lining up from the beginning to now. Chase Ross as the human performer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I I think we are kind of wrapping up, uh, and I have just a couple of questions more. Uh, okay. The first one is. What are some of the driving forces that you remember from your um, inter your previous interviews that that kind of drive you nowadays? Yeah, there are definitely some that stands out. I love this question too. So, one one that really stands out and sticks out for me is um, Cameron Shane's interview, and his driving force was, "I just want to be great." whatever that means in my life, I just want to be great. And I just love kind of like the humility of that answer and just kind of tell it's like really genuine. So I just want to be great. <laughs> like that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's a and, good answer. Yeah. So that one sticks out. Uh, Fiona Oaks's. it's all for the animals. Like everything I'm doing with like this marathon running and ultra running, I'm just doing it for the love of these animals. And that's just so like, so selfless and like such for like a higher, like a, purpose much outside of herself it's like really truly inspiring and you know that's one that like she's definitely been one of the most, most inspiring podcast guests that i've had like without question and then the last one i would say is um george hodgins driving force which is doing hard things to serve others which is also for kind of like tying in that serving others piece but also like kind of seeking out that suffering so those are three that are really resonate with me mm. so so now here it is for you what what do you think is your driving force or what is your driving force <sighs> big question <laughs> yeah it's it's my parents i think that's i think honestly that's the case for most people um or i mean it's most often the case if like your parents or your, your parents were around or or, or is around um, they're, they're the biggest influences on your life, I think. So, yeah, it's, so it's my, it's my parents and it, like I've said, they've had a huge influence on me. So it's, yeah, that's what, what's what drives me. They've provided me with like all the opportunities in the world. And I just want to make sure that it's, it's all worth it for them and with all the support that they've given me. So yeah, it's, they're the biggest driving force for me. It's just my, my parents. Yeah. That's, that's a great driving force. And this kind of reminds me of something that I say that I am just a reflection of everyone that I surround myself. Uh, and that might be the case. You're just a reflection of your parents. Uh, so keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that's it really for, for, from my takeover. I, I just really want to thank you. I, I think we could really be talking for hours about everything. Uh, so Definitely. trying to summarize your life in just an hour and a bit, it's really tough. And I would really encourage everyone to go to chaserossa.com. Just keep the podcast and keep up the good work, Chase. Thank you so much for letting me take over. Yeah. Thank you, Alberto. And thanks everyone who's listening. And we'll see you next time.